Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Today's episode is about why we dream and what our dreams mean with Joe Griffin. He's the co-founder of the Human Givens Approach. Joe is a psychologist with many years of experience both in psychotherapeutic practice and in training psychotherapists. Over the last two decades, as the co-developer of the Human Givens Approach, which we'll go into, thousands of health professionals have benefited from his workshops on therapy for treating things like anxiety-related disorders, depression, trauma, and addiction. And he's written a number of books, including Why We Dream, The Definitive Answer, and other books on treating anxiety and depression. So Joe, thank you so much for joining the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Yasmin. So, Joe, to kick it off, can you tell us why it's important to understand our dream state? Well, it would be hard to underestimate how important it is to understand the dream state. For a start, dreaming is intimately involved in our mental health. Depression is closely connected to the dreaming mechanism going wrong. So is psychosis. So is post-traumatic stress disorder. And at the other end of the spectrum, the highest spiritual states are also connected to the dreaming mechanism. So understanding dreaming is a gateway to understanding reality and consciousness. And Joe, maybe we can define what it actually means to dream. You know, what happens when we go to bed at night and are there stages to dreaming? Oh, well, there are certainly stages to sleep, Yasmin. When we first go to sleep at at, at nighttime, we spend about five to 10 minutes in the very first stage of sleep and this is sleep is so light that, you know, if somebody spoke to you, you might hear them and you might even deny you're asleep. Scientists say this is the first stage of sleep. And during this time, we might suddenly get a, a jerk or we might get little bits of hallucinations like we're falling down. And that lasts for a few minutes. And then we go into sleep proper, as it were. And that can last for up to an hour, this light sleep. Then we go into what's called deep sleep. Now, we can divide sleep into three stages, light sleep, deep sleep, and dream sleep. Now, deep sleep and dream sleep, of course, are the critical states. Now, one way of thinking of of, of these two different purposes or functions are to regard the deep sleep as being about the physical maintenance of the body. And dream sleep is about the maintenance of our emotional life. So one is taking care of the hardware and the other type of sleep is taking care of the software. Dreaming is taking care of the software. Now, dreaming occurs about every hour and a half to two hours throughout the night. We start off at short periods, maybe lasting 10 minutes. And close to morning, we might have up to an hour of dream sleep. So if you like, that's the dream cycle going through the night, going from night sleep to deep sleep, dream sleep. And that keeps getting repeated and several times throughout the night. Wow. And so what about for people that may not remember that they dream? Um, And I I think maybe, are you saying that everyone dreams whether they remember it or not? That is the fascinating thing, Yasmin. (laughs) When I first got interested in dreams, I honestly thought I never rarely dreamt. But the research shows that everybody dreams. And we dream prodigiously. Up to two hours a night we spend dreaming. So everyone dreams, but you're quite correct. Not everybody recalls their dreams. And the reason for this is that 
some people can wake up very quickly to an alarm clock and suddenly they're so abruptly awake, they lose the connection to the dreams very fast. Dreaming has to, you have to be in the right frame of mind to be able to recall dreams. That dream state can just disappear like gossamer in the wind as though it were never there, unless you're paying attention, unless you're waking up leisurely and giving attention to it. It's also true that if you take an interest in your dreams and even say to yourself before you go to sleep at night, I'd like to recall some dreams in the morning, you're much more likely to be able to recall them. They respond to our attention, as it were, and we're more likely to recall them. You know, I kept a dream journal for about a year or two, and it was so fascinating. I think, you know, maybe 80% of it I, I could not understand at all. Um, but about 20% of it was actually almost a, you know, premonition, like, um, you know, it told me a lot about what was coming. And, uh, you know, I even had, I even wrote in my dream journal before I even started the show many years ago that I was going to interview Marissa Peer, who's one of the leading um, hypnotherapists in Britain. And I just kind of wrote that down. I had no idea what that meant. And then years later, it turned out that actually she did uh, show up on my show um, and just fascinating. So, I, I think, you know, for people that even are tracking their dreams or trying to make sense of their dreams, like how do we learn and understand what our dreams are trying to tell us, what they really mean? Well, to understand what our dreams mean, we must first understand what the function of dreaming is. Now, when I was a young undergraduate at London School of Economic Studies and Psychology back in the day, uh, the, the prevailing theories were Freudian theories that dreaming was all about our unconscious mind and unacceptable wishes and that we had to disguise and hide because they'd be so shocking if we were even to admit them to ourselves and those Jungian notions. But at the time I went to university, new research had come out and was increasing to come out on the biology of dreaming, which totally undermined Freudian and Jungian theories of dreaming. Although, of course, they were ignoring their biological research and still do to some extent. But the biological research showed that all animals dream, at least all mammals dream and some birds dream. And they do it predictably in a predictable cycle. And if all mammals dream, then dreaming has to have a common function across all mammalian species, including humans. It's perfectly possible, of course, that additional properties are taken on by humans. But if I were to say to you that the kidney is found in all mammals, and I were to give you an explanation for the kidney that was exclusive to humans, you would be rightly skeptical. The kidney would have to be doing some common function across all mammals, and it could be doing some additional functions for humans. That's perfectly possible. And that's what's happening in dreaming. Dreaming at its most basic biological level is a program. And its program is to restore the emotional balance in us as human beings. Now, one of the discoveries made at that time was that dreaming occurs in a special state of consciousness called the REM state. In this REM state, the body is paralyzed so that we don't act out our dreams. And in this REM state, the brain is highly active because dreaming involves a lot of work in our brain to produce those vivid hallucinations. But this state of the REM state is most prevalent in the fetus. In, in the unborn baby. And that led to lots of investigative research to find out why, what were unborn babies dreaming about for that matter? <laughs> well, they're not, their brains, they don't have enough experience to have dreams as we have them. And what it turns out is that in the fetus, babies are being programmed with instinctive behavior. This was discovered because a man called Michel Juve was able to remove the paralysis and the REM state from cats 
when they went into the dream state and found that they acted out instinctive behavior. They went hunting and went grooming and they did instinctive thing behaviors that cats do. And when animals had their REM sleep disrupted when they were in the uterus, their instinctive behavior was disrupted in adulthood. So we know that the REM state evolved, first of all, to program in our software, program in our instinctive behavior. And that then is maintained throughout life to, as it were, correct any damage to our instinctive programming. In humans, what this boils down to, Jasmine, is that in the course of every day, we get emotionally worked up about stuff. Now, some of that stuff we can act out and deal with, but some of it we hold back or we suppress or we can't deal with it. And those arousals contain emotional charges, which if they weren't discharged, would continue to obsess us the next day, even though they might no longer be relevant and get in the way of us being effective the next day. So by discharging those emotional arousals, the brain is protecting the instinctive behavioral responses and putting our brain into optimal state to be able to deal with the challenges of the next day. Wow. And what about for people that have severe insomnia? I mean, I think in the West, I feel you know anecdotally that so many people I know have difficulty sleeping or difficulty in remaining asleep uh, or waking up too early. So what happens in those cases? Does it mean that we will act out the things that we haven't processed the night before? Um, you know, how severe is it? And yeah, what have you seen in your research? Right. Well, what happens if we, if our sleep is prevented, right? If we're prevented from sleep, for whatever reason, anxiety can stop sleeping, for example. Um, but if we prevent sleeping, what happens is, and, we, and the dreaming doesn't take place, what happens is that we are much more autonomically, as instinctively aroused the next day. All our appetites are less controlled, even our appetites for food. That's why insomnia is associated with obesity, because your hunger and your appetites are much more greatly increased if you don't have them dampened down by the dream mechanism, discharging the arousals. So... If we don't get our, our quota of dreaming over a period of time, we will get more and more stressed out, more and more emotionally charged and aroused. And yes, it does impact upon our mental health, no question. Wow. And Joe, why are dreams sometimes so intense and feel so real when we're in them? I mean, there have been moments I've had dreams where I've just like, remember just feeling such a, I don't know, horror, maybe is the word, or terror. Uh, and then I wake up and I'm like, oh, you know, it's it's not a big deal. It was it was just a dream. But the level of terror I don't usually feel in my waking state. Uh, so why are dreams so intense sometimes? Yes, that's very interesting. First of all, let me just put in the additional bit in there. The dreams are not only can be not only intense, but they can seem so real. And the reason our brain can't see or be aware that these dreams are fictions is that the executive functions, the critical functions that would question reality are switched off. Even though large parts of the brain are switched on, the parts of the critical parts of the brain are switched off. So we will accept the dream hallucination as real. Now, they can be very vivid because they relate to fears that we had. And even though we may have only had them, we may not even, it may not have seemed that so intense to us whilst we were awake, an apprehension about a boss. But, you know, we suppressed it and we talked no more of it. But that night we could have a real anxiety dream, a nightmare about a boss behaving absolutely, you know, unspeakably bad towards us. 
And, and that does happen. It depends upon the level of arousal during the day connected to that pattern that we're suppressing. Now, if you've got a history, say, of uh, suppressing fear of bosses, then that could be you know, very, very intense indeed. Wow. What about recurring dreams or nightmares? Are they not processed? Uh, I've had a recurring nightmare that comes every year, maybe, that I've had for maybe 10 years. <laughs> I actually wrote, wrote a little bit about it in my journal because it was so, it felt so real. So it's always in the ocean and the ocean is always kind of dark. So it doesn't actually feel like water. It feels murky. And mm -hmm. I'm by myself and I'm swimming. And I, I think it's so interesting. I've always been very afraid of being deep in the ocean, which is funny because I've done triathlons, but it, I've always been scared, you know, very far out in the ocean. And I'm swimming by myself and it's nighttime and I see like a lighthouse in the middle and I always get to this lighthouse. And the person usually says to me, do you want a life uh, jacket or a, and a boat or do you want to just keep going? And there's like a storm. And I always say to them, uh, no, I'm going to keep going. And it, again, I'm like pushed back into the terror until I find shore. Sometimes I see a shore and sometimes I don't. <laughs> wow, what a wonderful dream. <laughs> what I haven't said yet is that we dream in metaphor. And there are very good reasons why we dream in metaphor, because were we to dream the scenarios from waking on, that occurred during the previous day and act them out, we would get our memories all totally confused. So it's an able to separation and we dream in metaphors so that we don't confuse yesterday with what we're dreaming. But it's, we dream in metaphor and that dream is clearly about having a sense that you're going into deep waters, you're going into the unknown, you're feeling apprehensive about it. There's a chance somebody would be prepared to help you, but something within you, is courageous enough to say, I want to do it on my own. I want to push it on, even though I'm scared. So it, it, I think it talks, it talks about a lot of inner strength that you have, Jasmine. Mm, wow, that's powerful. Yeah, I've had a lot of, uh, you know, adversity in my life. So um, yeah, that's, that's powerful. And I don't have them as the nightmares as often anymore, because I feel like right now I'm on my life path. But yeah, it's been interesting. Transitional moments are when I usually have a lot more nightmares and a lot more dreams. And I, I actually do remember my dreams a lot, uh, but it's usually the last couple of minutes right before I wake up. Uh, yeah, that's the, it's, it's not right in the middle of the night or anything for hours. It feels like it's a couple minutes. Um, yeah. <laughs> you said something important there, Jasmine, that you tend to dream. You say, I dream a lot, but it's more during transitional phases. And again, that's what the research shows. When we're undergoing transitions in our life, we tend to dream more and dream more intensely. And the reason for that is quite simple. We're going to be doing a lot more introspection in our head, a lot, looking at a lot of stuff that we're not actually acting out in reality that can cause emotional charges, introspecting about different possibilities. And those introspections are going to be discharged as dreams. So whether we're getting divorced or worrying about a job promotion, whatever it might be, a transition in our life or a spiritual crisis, they'll tend to be associated with more intensive dreaming. This is so fascinating. Um, <laughs> so, Joe, how are things like daydreaming and hypnosis and and lucid dreaming all related to each other? I and I think I've read this uh, in a couple places, but I'm definitely not an expert. So you can correct me if I'm wrong here. But the brainwave state, I think it's called um, theta, is a a brainwave state that is suggestible to our subconscious mind. So I'm wondering how that's also related to dreaming. Like, are we, 
are we more suggestible during those states? Um, and then how are the, the three things, daydreaming, hypnosis, and lucid, lucid dreaming all related to each other? Right. Gosh, that is a complex question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> by bit for a start. Um, I'll just take lucid dreaming out of the way for a start. Okay. Lucid dreaming, normally in dreaming, we are unaware of the outside world. We're totally wrapped up in the reality of the dream. But occasionally, and it is occasionally, the part of the brain that is switched off in dreaming, the higher cortex, can get switched back on and we can become aware that we're dreaming. It's like we have temporarily a dual consciousness, the reality of the dream state and the awareness that we're in the dream state. People often, when they go into a lucid dream, will check it out and they'll find that maybe they can fly and, it's, and, and they can do all kinds of things in, 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 in this lucid dream state. And it can be very exhilarating. Now, the thing about lucid dreaming is there's a whole load of research programs teaching people how to do lucid dreaming. But the extraordinary thing, and it's claimed that were we to master the technology of lucid dreaming, we could do all kinds of reprogramming in our brain. And that is so. But what that is missing out is the fact that we have already have access to the REM state because that's what hypnosis is. Hypnosis is an artificial way of getting into the dreaming brain, the dreaming state. You see, when we dream, we dream in a, in, in a theater, the REM theater, which can generate a reality. And hypnosis is getting a person into the REM theater, and then the hypnotist provides a script for them. And yes, to a degree, depending how deeply involved you are in the REM theater, you are more suggestible, but not wholly suggestible by any means, because um, if things are said to us that, that contradict our basic values, we will be reluctant to accept them. Although some people, hypnotists, can be very clever about how they manipulate our values to make something that's contrary to our values seem like it's somehow not contradicting them. But generally speaking, we won't do things that we disagree with uh, during the hypnotic state. But that's what the great mystery about hypnosis was. How can people see things that are not there? How can they think that there's fairies running around the room? <laughs> and the answer is so simple. They're in the dreaming brain. They're in the REM state. And that's a powerful therapeutic modality because it's the brain's programming state. And somebody who understands and is trained in the responsible use of hypnosis as a psychotherapy tool, it can be extraordinarily powerful. But it must be said that hypnosis in and of itself is not a psychotherapy. It, it is simply a technology that gets you into the brain's programming state. And a person needs to have the right training to be able to do responsible things and know how to treat depression and trauma and all the rest of it when they access that state. So have I, have I kind of mentioned everything that you mentioned there? Have I left any bits out? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm I'm just uh, taking it all in because I think that, um, yeah, I've just been confused about the suggestible kind of pieces for wh where our brainwaves are at and, and what that means, right? Because I've, I've also heard that right when we wake up and right before bed are also suggestible times um, for our subconscious mind. So we should be very um, into it. to say that because just before when we go to bed, we, we slip into the REMS. When I talk about that first stage of sleep, we're actually, for about five minutes, we slip into the REM state and we can get the hallucinations going and we can have tiny little short dreams about things we were thinking about just before we fell asleep. But because it's the, hip, the REM state is the hypnotic state, we can be manipulated. People have been manipulated in prison and things and somebody sharing the prison with them knew how to put suggestions into their mind. Wow. 
So you um, spoke about how animals also dream uh, and how, <laughs> I'm just fascinated that birds even dream. Um, how do animals dream differently than humans? Like what has been the research on that? Well, what animals would be dreaming about would be obviously much more simplistic to our, than what we do with any instinctive behavior that the animal couldn't carry out or, and, or had to suppress. So let's say a cat hears a rustle in the bushes and I wonder, could that be a mouse? Because the cat has got a cortex that stops it wasting energy. It holds back. It may hold back the impulse to rush at the bushes and say, well, let's hang on a bit here and see. But the impulse has been aroused, but the cortex suppresses it. And after a minute, the cat realizes that there's nothing there. It's just wind blowing a bit of paper around. That impulse is still aroused in the emotional brain of the cat in the autonomic nervous system. And it will still be looking for an expression the next day. So that night in its dreams, the cat will act out the impulse to chase after something. It won't be that particular bush, but it'll be some other bush or some other place. And he'll act out that impulse and get rid of it. So it's discharging the unacted out instinctive impulses that for one reason or another had to be held back or repressed. Because even animals repress feelings. They have a cortex to do that. But obviously much simpler than humans. Because our dreams act out what's been going on in our imagination, what we've been thinking about. Human dreaming is as complex as the mind that's introspecting during the day. So um, I'm curious, you know, why did you study this? <laughs> and can you tell us a little bit about your journey? It seems like you obviously spent so much time, uh, not just on dreaming. Um, you also created the humans given approach. So I wanted to also just touch on that and, uh, the work that you guys do, but how did you come to study this? Like what, um, inspired you to, uh, pursue this type of work? Well, I, I, I originally wanted to be a writer. And I came to London uh, following being inspired by James Joyce's portrait of the young master. I wanted to go abroad and become a writer. And, uh, and so I decided I'd go to university in London and study English literature. But I was followed over to London by my younger brother, who started to get and suffer from clinical depression. And I went to various visits to mental hospitals with him and psychiatrists. And he'd get out of his depression, but would come back again and again and again. And only somebody who's lived with somebody who's depressed knows the emotional pain they're going through. And that made me switch my degree from studying English literature to studying psychology in the hope that I could learn something that would help me, help my brother get out of his depression. That was my motivation for studying psychology in the first place. And it was very providential, if I might say so, that the discoveries which I made around dreaming and other people have given us a new insight into how to lift depression. And in the Human Givens approach, we now routinely lift depression in many times only one or two cases. I'll give you an example just very quickly. Uh, a young married man came to see me two weeks ago and he'd been depressed for a year. He'd been on quite heavy medication for a year. He'd gone for some traditional counseling. It wasn't helping. And I did one session with him, got him getting him deeply relaxed using guided imagery is what we call talk about hypnosis, guided imagery, getting him into the REM state. And in the REM state, I helped to retrieve all the resources that he'd lost sight of since he got depressed. You know, what intelligent he was, what an entrepreneur he was, how he, how he loved his partner in life, how he loved his sports. And I started bringing back all these joyous things back to his consciousness. And there were certain problems there that he had, and there was guilt around him. 
but I helped him put him into a context whereby you could see he wasn't a bad person. He could learn from the from these mistakes and he could go on and look forward to a better future. And all of that was done through the programming state of guided imagery. He came back to see me, this is just a couple of days ago, and his depression was gone. A year-long depression, antidepressants and all the rest, was gone as a result of one hour of human givens therapy. And this is routine for human givens therapists. Routine. Wow. Um, how has your work uh, played out with this last year in the pandemic? Have you seen an increase of depression? Uh, yeah, how have you guys kind of dealt with this last year? And you, are you all online now or are you going moving back into in-person? Well, because because I am now fully vaccinated, I'm moving back in person. Um, but we've had to do a lot of work online. We've had to do a lot of work online. It's been heartbreaking, this pandemic. That's all I can say for therapists. Is it genuinely? It has been heartbreaking to see the increases in mental illness. See, the, the whole human given approach is based on a very simple paradigm. That is, we have needs. If we get those needs met, we are mentally healthy. And to the degree those needs are compromised, we develop mental illness. Simple as that. And of course, the pandemic has meant people's need for community, for friendship, for intimacy, their needs for feeling control of their lives, not being in a state of anxiety all the time. These needs have been undermined. There's been a huge rise in mental illness as a result of it. And what really tears at my heart, because I've seen it, is the rise in mental illness in young people, in young teenagers, isolated and cut off. Um, rise in mental illnesses such as eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia and self-harming in young people. And all of this is directly attributable to the pandemic stopping young people and older people from getting their needs met. So, yeah, we have, we have a whirlwind of mental illness to deal with now as we get this pandemic under control. Yeah. And what do you uh, kind of think is going to happen over the next couple of years? I mean, do you think that, you know, people are taking more control over their own mental health or, or have, like what's sort of the trend that you've seen play out maybe in culture or at the, I don't know, um, government level? Like, do you think that we're being supported with mental health or do you think things are just kind of the same or even worse? To be honest, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, Jasmine. I know that there will be something of a reaction, a bit like the Roaring Twenties and people once this, once the restrictions of pandemic are lifted, will start to party more for a while and break out and do some of that. But I honestly think there's a re-evaluation taking place in a lot of thinking people's minds about what are the values in life, how what's important in life. And I think that change in values, greater emphasis on community, a greater emphasis upon well-being and the importance of mental health. I think that can play into the political system, certainly in democracies, democratic countries, and result in improved resources being put into mental health. I do expect that to happen. That's great. Yeah. And Joe, how do you stay grounded uh, when you are working in this space with so many mental health kind of, you know, issues around you? Like, how do you, how do you protect your own mental health? Like, do you have rituals? Uh, do you uh, create space in your schedule to decompress? And yeah, if there's any advice that you could share with our audience on, on what works for you, um, that would be great. Well, thank you for that wonderful question. Um, I find it's essential if you're dealing with work that's intensive and stressful that you take regular gaps throughout the day. And I always do that between sessions. I, have a, I don't go straight from one session to another session. I take a 15 or 20 minute gap to go and get a cup of tea, to go and clear my head, to get a space there. That's one thing. 
Secondly, I am fortunate, you know, I have a partner in life. I've grown up children. I'm active. They're actively involved in my life. So I work at getting my needs met. It's really important to take privacy and get space. We have to protect our own needs if we're going to help other people. And our needs include not just needs for, say, security, which is basically money and control and status, important as they are. But we also have a need for privacy space to ourselves. We need to be challenged and to be learning. The human brain is built for lifelong learning. We need meaning and purpose in our life above all. We can put up with a huge amount of suffering, Jasmine, if we feel that our life is connected to something bigger and more important than our own ego. For me, that's the spiritual dimension in life that I am I, I, very much committed to the, to, 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 the, to the certainty that our lives on this planet are purposeful and that we're here to help other people get their needs met. And doing that, we help ourselves. What do you think is the biggest um, emotional kind of need that has not been met uh, in the last several years? Like, what do you think? Is there is there one theme that keeps re-emerging uh, over and over again, or is it kind of like a mixed bag? What I find, and I've been doing work with companies, consultancy work in companies, because I, because a large amount of mental illness is created by toxic environments within companies, not intentionally, but through lack of knowledge. And what comes across to me there very much is, one, the need for genuine teamwork, the need to feel that you're a part of a group of people sharing and serving a, a, a purpose that's worthwhile and that, that, and that is respected rather than constant harping and competition which makes people feel very insecure. So the need to feel part of a group. Now, the, the younger groups coming through, uh, are, are coming into the workplace, are demanding, and it's more important to them, that they can feel a sense of meaning and purpose with the work that they're doing, that they can feel that they're part of a team of people cooperating, genuinely having each other's back, backs and sharing common purpose. And it was the absence of that, I feel, was it was it was it was a major contribution uh, contributor in the past to mental illness, but younger people today are not willing to put up with it anymore. They're looking for more emotionally healthy work environments. Amen to that. <laughs> I mean, that is a powerful point, and yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that I guess you know my perception of the Western corporate environment is is just that it's based on just value systems that are not integrating emotional well-being it you know it's sort of that feels like a side thing that gets dealt with when you know people or teams have breakdowns but it should be part of the foundation and it's so interesting uh you know how toxic environments are i mean even just in silicon valley it feels like there's so much competition within organizations and lack of transparency lack of personal safety and so um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I think that I want to just like really underscore that point and highlight it because I think a lot of companies just assume that this is, you know, something that people need to deal with outside of work. And actually it's very much fundamental to our well-being. And I think I, I read somewhere, don't quote me on, on the stat here, but in a, like a Gallup poll study, it was said that, you know, people that, um, don't feel acknowledged or if there's like a lack of transparency, which happens where like sometimes a boss will not, you know, share what's actually happening with their employees, maybe out of fear of of how to move forward or 
I don't know, withholding information. And that seemed to be like one of the most toxic work environments to have where, you know, you just feel like you're in the dark because, uh, you know, people have no, uh, an employee then has no control over how to move forward. Um, and that contributed to a lot of uh, sick days and emotional, you know, instability, mental health issues. So it's so interesting how powerful our work environments can be on our mental health. Oh, extraordinary. So, and what you're talking about there, that feeling of being excluded, that information is being kept back from you, is one of the most toxic feelings a human being can have. Because it's one of our most basic needs. We need to feel part of a team of people that we're jointly protecting each other. And if we're, ex- and if we're excluded from that at work, it's a, be a major generator of anxiety disorders and depression and addictions. Yeah. Wow. The other thing that companies can be missing out and organizations are missing out is that when we get people working together genuinely for a common purpose that people can genuinely take pride in and working together and cooperatively to do that, you release a higher form of intelligence. You release team intelligence. And the research shows that that is far better than any individual intelligence on its own. Team intelligence will outperform individual intelligence every time by a mile. And that's what we need to be getting team intelligence for. Right. So, and how do you train managers and companies to, to do this work? Uh, you know, is it like a kind of a long journey? I imagine that every team is different. Every company is different because every person, you know, comes to the table with a very different, um, you know, I guess, orientation towards mental health and well-being and team building and connection. So yeah. How do you, you know, that you would think you would think that for sure, John. I mean, but actually, when, when I go into a company and my colleagues go into a company or an organization, we ask them, what are your challenges? What are your difficulties? What are your problems? And they list them. And quite honestly, they're very similar lists from every organization, whether they're engineering companies or finance companies or food manufacturing companies. The same problems, holding on, problems of holding on to good people, the lack of motivation of staff, the, the, the problem people not being interested in, in learning. Um, and we write down the problems on, you know, on a flip chart. And we say, well, what need could be missing there? Well, that person doesn't feel any sense of control in their life. Why do you think these people here are not identifying with the company? Do you think that they are being recognized by the company? Is their need for status not being met by the company? Do you have the skill of meeting your people reporting to you? Have you, have you got the skill of validating their status when it's appropriate? Do you have the skill of giving control to people? Because in a healthy organization, control is pushed downwards to people at the cold face. In an unhealthy organization, control is pushed upwards and replaced by red tape. And so we teach them about that. If you want your problem solved, you want your bottom line to get better, you want to be a more profitable company, you got to release the talent and the intelligence of your workforce. And at the moment, you're not getting it because you're not allowing their needs to be met. You're not creating a culture wherein people are allowed to make decisions, where people are getting their status respected, where people feel that they're a part of a team and not on their own. You've not got a culture where people genuinely feel there's opportunities for learning here and that we're serving a common purpose. It's because these needs are not being met. That's why your company is underperforming and you have all these problems. So, Joe... Why do you think that this subject, uh, you know, Human Givens Project, and as well as uh, dreaming, why are these subjects so important right now? Well, I could answer this <laughs> at, at, <laughs> at, many, at many levels. <laughs> Let me just take one level. 
if the human species is to survive on this planet, you have to become more mentally healthy as a species, capable of taking more responsibility for our fellow people on the planet, for our environment, etc. We can only take those decisions and do those responsible behaviors if we're mentally healthy. We can't be mentally healthy unless we understand the connection to sleep, unless we understand the connection between pathological dreaming caused by too much worrying and clinical depression. Unless we understand how to allow humans and to facilitate humans being more emotionally stable and having well-being, we will not be able to tackle the problems that are going to kill this planet in relatively recent short order. So yes, for the survival of our species, for the survival of the planet, these are vitally important, vitally important knowledge and skills to know and to learn about. Thank you so much for that. So inspiring. I, you know, I think um, the mental health crisis, we're actually in a mental health crisis right now. And I think a lot of people sometimes are not acknowledging that or, you know, maybe feel lost in terms of what to do, what to do next or, yeah, like I think that's what I've seen. So it's just interesting bringing awareness, giving people tools. What sort of things have surprised you on this path and on this journey? You know, whether it's working with certain people, um, you know, creating the human givens approach, your research with dreaming. Like, what's what's something that's really surprised you? Maybe about your work or even just about humanity. Well, one thing that surprised me is that mental illness can be cured. Mental, people can get out of mental illness in a fraction of the time that was taught 20 or 30 years ago. People can be helped really quickly if the right scientific tools are put into place. And that, that, that is something joyous to see people who think that their lives are ruined get control back in their lives and a sense of hopefulness. So that's something that's continues to surprise me and, and, bring, and bring me much joy. But the thing that has really surprised me is when I started out on this path, I would have being a materialist and an atheist. But as I studied more of science and understood more of what was happening in evolution and physics, it became more and more apparent that the materialistic paradigm was untenable. This world, this world comes into being moment by moment, and all the information is there. Right in the Big Bang, all the information is there. Information is something that cannot be created or destroyed. So there has to be processes responsible for all of this. So the, the wonderful surprise for me was learning that we live in an ordered, intelligent universe where consciousness is a fundamental attribute, that we belong in this universe and we have a place to go in this universe. That has been a wonderful discovery for me. I love that, Joe. I have had a, a similar journey, um, maybe materialism, but also I became <laughs> a little bit of an atheist and then found a higher connection to everything that is. And it's so interesting when you can connect to everything, you don't have to take on so much, you know, the weight of the world is not on you anymore. Uh, it just feels, I guess, like a lighter existence when you feel like you're connected to everyone and everything. So my life just profoundly changed. No matter where you are, no matter how dire your circumstances, you are not alone. <laughs> yes. Uh, Joe, what are some books or people that maybe inspired you on this path? Like, are there any heroes that you've had while you've been on this journey? Well, Ibram Maslow was the great positive psychologist that was, that, that was around when I first started studying psychology. And he was looking for people's strengths 
And he was also looking for the transcendent element in life and peak experiences. So I found him inspirational and he helped me and Ivan Terrell develop the whole concept of human givens and human needs. Dr. William Glasser as well in his reality therapy, although, you know, he, 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 he stressed the idea if we could get certain needs met and if we don't, mental illness will accrue. Now, it didn't work out of technology for removing the barriers to getting those uh, needs met. But nonetheless, it was very inspirational for me. But on a, on a more spiritual dimension, the people who have inspired me beyond a doubt have been um, Rumi the poet and his writings. Uh, the great Sufi master Ibn Arabi, Ibn al-Arabi, has been a huge inspiration to me. And also in the Christian tradition, Meister Eckhart, great 13th century mystic. All these great people, although they're coming from different religious ideologies, were all masters of the spiritual. And by that, I believe they were genuine scientists. They had found a way into understanding how the universe works. Now, they had to express it in the language of their religion if they didn't. As in the case of Meister Eckhart, he was hauled, he was hauled in front of the Inquisition in the Vatican and could have been burned, you know. But he was very, very careful and managed to escape with only having his works condemned. And that wasn't until after he died. But, but once you study them in depth, you realize they're all talking about the same stuff. And it's the stuff that scientists are now beginning to approach, physicists, etc., starting to approach the insights that these great spiritual masters had back in the Middle Ages. And I found that very inspirational to find that they are still way in advance of the, our scientists. Wow. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, over the last couple of years, I've read a couple hundred books. And it's so interesting if you follow a lot of these mystics uh, across different religions, faiths, and time periods, and they're all kind of saying the same thing um, with we're all one, we're all connected. And um, yeah, and I've seen also, you know, with science that uh, there's a lot of proof there too. So I'm just excited to see where all this goes, like in the next hundred years, <laughs> what's going to happen. And yeah, well, you might, you might be around for the next hundred years. I'm not expecting to. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows, right? With the way science and technology is advancing. <laughs> so Joe, this has been such an incredible conversation. I am so fascinated by the dream world uh, and how it relates to mental health. I think a lot of people have been asking me personally, you know, how to make sense of dreaming. What do you want to tell our listeners about their wellness and well-being as your main takeaway? Like what's sort of the, the piece of wisdom or advice you'd like to give them? And I think one other thing, a question that keeps coming up from a lot of guests and, uh, uh, sorry, a lot of our audience members is how to kind of deal with insomnia? Like, do you have any best practices on that? So two questions. One is, um, what do you want to tell our listeners about their wellness and well-being? And then the other is, what's, it, what's the advice you'd give them on insomnia? All right. Well, firstly, if you are interested in the ideas that we've explored here today, are you interested in getting trainings? Our college, the Human Givens College, has a wealth of online training courses that people view from all over the world. And that will give you knowledge and skills. And, and we also can access our books and whatnot and videos through Human Givens College. So just look, look it up, humangivenscollege.com. So that's one, that's one way to get further you know, information. With regard to insomnia, we have to relax. We have to calm down. We have to do certain elementary things. Do not be working up before you go to sleep. You need a wind down period of about two hours before you go to bed. 
don't take strong exercise before you go to bed because it charges the autonomic nervous system when it should be going into relaxation. <laughs> uh, a small amount of alcohol, assuming you're allowed alcohol in your, in, your, in, in, in your world, can be conducive, but a large amount of alcohol causes disruption in the sleep in the second half of the night. Um, the insomnia, though, is resulting because you're not getting your needs met. Take a look. What are the needs you're not getting met? Are, are you feeling out of control? Are you worrying about your status? Are you worrying about security? Now, if it's, or is it because your relationships are in difficulty? Identify the needs that are not being met and then get some practical advice and help to address the need. And if you do that, your sleep will come back. Mm, powerful, powerful. <laughs> I love that so much, Joe. Uh, you're such an inspiration. And so we talked about human givens. We talked about uh, the, your, your books and you've written quite a few books. Can you point folks to where they can find you, where they can learn more about you, maybe the website of Human Givens Approach? Well, human, yes, well, they can, they can find out a lot about us at uh, humangivens.com or just, or just uh, Google search uh, Human Givens College. Uh, if they want to contact me direct, just uh, email me at joe at humanneeds.com, joe at humanneeds.com. And if you want to find out about my work with companies, just look up our website, Human Needs, all one word. Amazing. And uh, there's a wide range of books available that we have. I have a new book coming out in two months' time because this might well be the last book that I write. It addresses the bigger, deeper philosophical questions of life. Uh, that book is going to be called our mystical universe, the journey home. And that should be published in the next eight weeks. It will be available on Amazon, of course, for those who might be interested. Amazing. Well, I'm definitely interested. I will absolutely be purchasing that. <laughs> Amazing, Joe. Thank you so much for our time. I'm just inspired and I just can't wait to listen to this again, frankly, and, and take some notes. <laughs> so thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Yasmin. I really enjoyed talking with you. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about dream healing with Joe Griffin. Tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.